Well, it's great to be with you all this morning. I'm Blake. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we will be this morning as we continue our series on relationships, on how to connect. God created us for relationships with Him and with one another. And when you look at all the relationships in our lives, with the exception of our relationship with Jesus, the most powerful and important relationship is probably the one between parents and kids. If you think about it, your relationship with parents and kids, that that began before you were born. According to modern science, actually parents begin to form a bond with their child while the child's still in the womb. And then that relationship changed more than any other relationship in your life from from going from an infant to an adult. And, And now if you're a parent, that relationship with your children demands and consumes more of your time than any other relationship in life. And so it is kind of remarkable that for a relationship that is so important and demands so much of your time, the Bible has very little to say directly about this parent-child relationship. When you compare what the Bible says about how to use your money or how to suffer well or how to do church right, there's really shockingly few passages about parents and kids. Very, very few. And so when you do see a passage that's specifically about a parent's responsibilities to his or her children and the children's responsibilities to parents, you really want to pause and and you want to look deeply at that passage because it's one of the few that you get. And one of those few is our passage this morning, Ephesians 6, one of the very few passages in the Bible that are directly about parents and kids. So we're going to unpack it and study it. It's really important. We're going to see what it has to say to us. The first three verses are about a child's responsibilities to his or her parents, and the final verse is about parents' responsibilities to children. So we're going to start with the verses about children and a children's responsibility to parents. So if you'll look with me, we're going to start in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 6. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So Paul starts with responsibilities to children. He's going to say, children, obey your parents. In a moment, he's going to add the word, honor your parents. Now, the challenge with that verse, it's, it's really easy to miss the scope of this passage because we hear the English word children, and what do we think about? Little people, little kids. We, we actually, that's the nomenclature we use here at Grace. We have children's ministry, right? But that's different from youth ministry, which is different from college ministry. So in English, we think of children as young kids, but that's not true in Hebrew or Greek. In Hebrew or Greek, there was no age limit to the word children. There was no stature limit to the word. Children simply meant that you came from two parents, which is true of every one of us. Biblically speaking, we are all children. So the question for us was: is, at what point in the Bible did this command of children obey your parents no longer apply to you? At what point would it, would it be appropriate to no longer think of yourself as a child who has to obey his or her parents? Well, biblically speaking, that transition occurred at marriage. So Genesis chapter 2, at marriage, a husband is to leave 
his father and mother, mean coming out of, of obedience to them out of their household and was to cleave to his wife and the two would become one new flesh and, and create one new family. So that was the moment of transition for a boy or a girl into marriage. They're now their own family. In our culture, it's a bit different. We don't tie it quite so much to marriage. In our culture, we tie it to financial independence. So how long is it appropriate to think of yourself as a child? Well, so long as you are dependent upon your parents. Now, that's certainly true for little kids. It's also true for teenagers. It's, it's true for a lot of college students, too. If you're still financially dependent on your parents or if you move back in with them during the summers or winter break, you're still a child. And six, chapter 6, verse 1 still applies to you. True, too, for adult children who move back into their parents' house. If they're depending on their parents and they are in the position of child and therefore required to obey. Okay, so when God talks about children obeying their parents, he's talking about any person who's still dependent upon their parents. Paul says to obey your parents in the Lord. That phrase, in the Lord, it's taking the concept of parental obedience and and in a sense it's putting it on steroids. It's raising the significance of it. Paul wants us to understand that when children are called to obey their parents, that's part of how the child expresses obedience to God. To obey your parents is, is to obey God. You can't say that you're following Jesus as a child and not obey your parents. It's a really serious thing. And, and Paul amplifies it even more by adding the phrase, for this is right. You hear right and you think, well, it's proper. Now, right means more than that. That's the same word group we get righteousness and justice from. What Paul is saying is that for a child to obey his or her parents is a matter of righteousness and justice in the eyes of God. Disobedience is, is a, a violation of righteousness and justice. So it's really serious, really serious what, what Paul is saying here. He wants us to understand anyone who's still depending on parents is required to obey their parents. Now to drive that home even more in the next verse, Paul is going to quote from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments. So look with me at verse 2. Paul says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother. So notice he, he substitutes a word here. He doesn't use the word obey uses the word honor. What does honor mean? Well, honor is getting to the idea of attitude or what you think of your parents. To honor means to ascribe high value to someone, to esteem them or revere them. I I think the reason that Paul uses this word instead of the word obey is because he wants to, to point to the reality, you can obey your parents without honoring them, right? You, you can obey with a scowl on your face. You can obey with a disrespectful attitude. And Paul wants us to understand that's not enough. That's not okay. Obedience is to be couched in honor. We're to, we're to obey in a respectful way, respecting our parents in our words and even in our tone of voice. That's crucial. So children are required not just to obey, but also honor their parents in their attitude, their words, and their tone of voice. And in our home, um, we've been seeing that as a bit of a problem. My kids are now 10. So they're old enough to, to technically obey Julie and I. They, they kind of have that figured out. But now that they're old enough to obey, we've noticed they don't always do it in an honorable way. So sometimes we tell them to do something and they're quick to say, fine, okay. And, and we kind of realize that's, that's not enough. That's really not what God is looking for. He's looking for it 
to be obedient with honor. And so we have started doing what we call the yes sir, yes ma'am jar on the kitchen counter. Basically, every time my parents or my kids say yes ma'am or yes sir, no ma'am or no sir in an appropriate way, they get to add a marble to the jar when it's full, they get ice cream. It's working really well. Now, I will confess, just so you understand what life is like in the Jennings household, it took about six hours before they figured out how to game the system. They realize that if they make really annoying loud sounds, I'm going to say stop that and they can say, yes, sir, and get one marble closer to ice cream. So that's why I said it has to be an appropriate use of the word. You game the system, I take one of your marbles. So we're still working on it. We're trying to help them understand. Not enough to just obey. It has to be with honor. It has to be in a respectful way. So God demands a lot of children. He calls children, all those who are still financially dependent on their parents, to obey and honor their parents in all things. And to motivate us to do that, God then gives a promise. So verse 3, Paul's quoting from the Old Testament again. Here's God's word. So you are to honor your father and mother so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. This is one of the few commands God gives. It's accompanied by a promise about something God will do in this life. There's a lot about what God will do for you in the next life if you obey, but in this life. You will experience wellness. You will thrive. You will live a long life if you obey your parent. I think all of us have been alive long enough to know that's not a blanket or absolute promise. We all know obedient children who died young and disobedient children who are still alive. But it is what we would call a proverbial truth. This is how God designed the universe to operate. Children who obey and are respectful to parents tend to thrive and do better in life than children who don't. And actually, we see that design in all of the life that God made. Think about a a bear cub. A bear cub that that follows his or her parent and and goes where they go, that's an animal that that will tend to do well. A bear cub that goes off on its own, that's a bear cub that's going to probably die. That's how it was designed in the animal kingdom. That's the same with humanity. Children tend to do better who respect and obey parents. That's how God designed life to operate. So to summarize, if you depend on your parents, then God commands you to obey and honor them for that will help you to thrive in life. Now, anytime I teach that, it raises a very natural question, a very appropriate question for anyone who's, who's a child. What if my parents tell me to do something sinful or stop doing something good? What do I do then? Well, that's an easy one. In all of life, there is a hierarchy of obedience. Hierarchy, meaning there are some to whom you you must give greater obedience than to others. And and above all, there is God. At the top of the list, we're to obey God first always. So if that that in mind, if, if your parent tells you, hey, come try some meth, obviously the answer is no. No, I shouldn't do that. That's a clear violation of God's principles. Or more likely, if you have a parent who maybe is, is not a Christian or not walking with the Lord, and, and they tell you, hey, you're wasting your time at church. Why are you bothering with that? Or you should stop giving to charity. Why are you giving away so much money? Or stop sharing your faith with people and talk about Christianity stuff. It's making things awkward. Well, you shouldn't obey those commands. Because those go against what God has told us to do, and we owe God our obedience first. However, here's the kicker. When you disobey, disobey with honor. There's a way that you can disobey your parents when your parents are going against the will of God that is honorable and a way that is dishonorable. 
So giving him the finger and storming out of the door, that's not an honorable way to disobey. Don't do that. Instead, with, with calmness and grace and, and being reasonable, explain why you love your parents, you want to honor them, but you simply can't do this. You have to do what God has said because he is first and foremost in your life. Okay, So God always first, but when you have to disobey, do it in a respectful and honorable way. Okay, now... Let's get to the rest of us in this room, because for a lot of us in this room, um, we're no longer financially dependent on our parents. So how does this command apply to us? I'm 43. I have a family of my own, have 10-year-old twins. I'm married. I have a house of my own. I'm not financially dependent on my parents anymore in any way. So this command to children does not any longer directly apply to me. So what can I do with this? What, what does God want me to do in my relationship towards my parents? Well, for me, the passage that I particularly need to look at and learn from is 1 Timothy 5. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, but if a widow... He's talking about an older woman whose husband has died, has children or grandchildren. Let them, the children or grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, what Paul is saying is, as our parents age, it becomes our responsibility to provide for them. And so I like to think of it this way. I am always to honor my parents. That's always true, no matter my age, no matter their age. But as I transition out of the childhood stage, my responsibility goes from honor and obey to honor and provide. So that's where I am now. As a 43-year-old man whose parents are getting older, I'm in the position of honoring and providing for my parents. Now, it is interesting. We live in a very different culture and a very different economic system than they did in the ancient world. In the ancient world, it was assumed that everyone who grew older would be cared for by his or her parents, like actually move back into the house and be fed and clothed and cared for by by their kids or by their grandchildren. That was how social security, if you will, worked in the ancient world. Your kids and grandchildren were your social security. They were your safety net. In our world, it's a little different. We now have a thing called Social Security, and, and we have things called nursing homes, and we have all sorts of, in a sense, tools that are available for helping us as we age. What does that mean for us? Well, there's nothing inherently sinful with Social Security or nursing homes. However, nothing absolves us of responsibility for our parents. We must have their back at the end of the day. Whether or not they utilize a nursing home or retirement community, Social Security, whatever, they, they can utilize those tools, but the primary responsibility for honoring and providing for our aging parents rests on our shoulders biblically. We're called to have their back and to care for them. So, in a sense, once a child, always a child. You always have responsibilities towards your parents so long as they're alive. Always to honor while you're young to obey when you get older to provide. Okay? So that's a child's responsibility to parents. Now let's move to the parents, which is a lot of us in this room. So I'm going to start with a confession. I am a parent. Parenting has proven to be by far the hardest thing I have ever done in my entire life. Not, not even a close second. I, I pushed and forced myself to get a 4.0 in mechanical engineering from Texas A&M. That was child's play compared to having kids. <laughs> 
hardest thing by far. I know I'm not alone. I read this week, Ray Ray Romano uh, once said, having children is like living in a frat house. Nobody sleeps, everything's broken, and there's a lot of throwing up, a shocking amount (laughs) of throwing up. Or as Elizabeth Gilbert put it, having a child is like getting a tattoo on your face. You better be committed because it's for life. Kate Middleton, who's, you know, married to Prince William, has lamented about how hard parenting is. Couldn't imagine how hard it is. And yet they have a full-time nanny and six personal staff waiting on them at all times. And it's still impossibly hard. Parenting is, is the hardest thing I have ever done, and I don't know what I'm doing half the time. No, over half the time. Who am I kidding? Not even close to half the time do I know what I'm doing. It is incredibly difficult, and, and one of the things that I've, I've come to realize is that nothing in my life has made me feel as inadequate as becoming a dad. Nothing. Not, not even close. Um, becoming a dad has uh, been the hardest challenge of my life, and that's why it's, it's really ironic that you asked me, or I guess Brian asked me, to preach a sermon on parenting. I've never felt as hypocritical preaching as I do today. I just this week on Tuesday night, my kids pushed my buttons. They're really good at it, especially at nighttime. They pushed my buttons so incredibly skillfully that I screamed at them. And so if you're here this morning to get a sermon on perfect parenting from a perfect parent, this is your cue to head for lunch. It's not crowded yet. You can get a great table. I'm definitely not the perfect parent to preach to you. I am struggling Now, what I've come to realize over time is that it doesn't seem like any of the other parents in the room have figured out how to do perfect parenting either. I have actually never talked to a parent in 16 years of pastoral ministry who said to me, this parenting thing, I've got it all figured out. I've nailed the whole be a mom, be a dad thing. I'm perfect at it. Never talked to anybody like that. Every parent I've ever talked to feels inadequate and incompetent. Every parent feels guilty and ashamed about the failures that they've made in the life of their kids. All of us are struggling, and, and that seems to be accelerating. I see more shame and more guilt and more fear in parenting because we're facing new challenges today that our parents didn't face, and so we have no model to look up to. My parents didn't have to deal with things like social media and its effect on kids or internet pornography and what it does to our kids. My parents could let me go on my bike through the neighborhood the whole day without supervision. Now I'd get arrested for that. We have to deal with all of these new things that our parents never did, and so we feel incredibly ill-equipped and inadequate and ashamed. We don't know what we're doing. And and so before I get to any practical advice, I, I think that the most helpful thing we could do for a moment is just sit here and admit to one another that we are all inadequate as parents. We are all struggling as parents. We all feel ill-equipped. We all feel the weight of our mistakes. We feel regret. We, we fear that we have blown it. That is common to all of us. I think that when we think about our parenting, I don't think there's a person in this room who's a parent who has proven to be as good a parent as he or she hoped or thought they would. All of us have fallen short of what we expected of ourselves. We've all blown it. And we just need to admit that and sit in that for a moment and realize that that's true of all of us. There are no perfect parents in this room. We have all fallen short of what we hoped we would do. And so the question for us now, if that's true, if we all do fall short, then 
What do we do as struggling and adequate parents to parent a little bit better? That's really all we can answer. I can't tell you how to be a perfect parent. I have no idea. What I can tell you is how can you parent a little bit better today? In the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your feelings of inadequacy, what can you do to, to move forward just a little bit as you raise your kids? I'm not going to give you a long list of advice. I don't think that's helpful. I'm just going to give you a few of the most important things I've learned as a parent uh, that come out of passages like what we're studying this morning. So three most helpful principles I've discovered. Number one, as parents, if you want to do better, stop comparing and start giving thanks. Look with me again at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Provoke to anger means you, you cause your kids to be intensely frustrated, really discouraged. Paul mentions this again in the book of Colossians. He says this, Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. That, that phrase, lose heart, that, that's so profound. You, you frustrate your children to the point that they become disheartened and want to give up. So, uh, why is it directed to fathers? You might be laughing about that, because I think as dads, we're probably the worst at this. Moms struggle with this too, but this is something that dads really struggle with. It's true for all of us, though, for moms and dads. We're commanded by God not to provoke our children to anger, not to frustrate them so that they become disheartened, so that they become discouraged. So, what does it actually look like to provoke our children to anger? Well, let's think about how we should respond to our kids when they disobey or struggle, and how we actually do respond. So how should we respond? Well, you have a model. It's God. How does God the Father respond to his disobedient children or his struggling children? Well, always with perfect grace and perfect wisdom and absolute truth. He, he is a perfect model to us. And so you look at that, and then you look at yourself. How do you respond? Have you ever felt like you fell short of perfect wisdom, perfect grace, perfect truth? Yes, I do all the time. How do I respond to my kids? Well, more often than I want to admit, I respond in anger and impatience and frustration when they disobey or struggle. So often, rather than the grace and the patience and the wisdom that I want, I find myself lashing out in anger and frustration and impatience. So why? Why do I do that? I, my wife loves to say, when you feel anger, anger is always a symptom. It's never the thing. It's the symptom, so get behind it. What is the thing behind it that's driving the anger? Okay, so why do I so often provoke my children? Instead of responding to their disobedience and struggles and grace and wisdom and truth, why do I respond in anger, impatience, frustration? Well, as I've reflected on that and prayed about that this week, for me, and I, I can't speak for you, but for me, there's a couple things that drive that anger, impatience, and frustration. Maybe you can identify with these. The first thing in my heart that drives it, I get angry because my kids aren't living up to the unrealistic expectations I created by comparing my family to other families. So I look at where's the anger coming from. It's coming from the fact that I have an expectation of how my child should act or should grow or should improve or should mature, and they're not living up to it. Where did that expectation come from? Well, I looked around and I saw other families and I saw other kids. Now, let's note, where am I seeing those other families and other kids? Well, typically at school, at church, and on Facebook, the three places where kids are best behaved. For real, at school, they got the teachers here. They're saints. 
At church? Well, it's church, and they only got to do it for like an hour and a half. And on Facebook, no one posts real life. All I see is your perfect families. And so I compare my real kids, who I see at their worst, with all of your best kids, who I see only at their best, and my kids fall short. And what does that do in my heart? When, when my kids don't live up to my unrealistic expectations that were formed by comparing my families to others, what does that breed in me? Fear. I feel fear. I feel afraid. What is wrong with my kids? What is wrong with me as a parent? Where am I blowing it? Are my kids going to be okay? Are they going to be sociopaths when they grow up? That comparison drives fear. And when I feel fear in my heart, and then my child misbehaves or struggles, how am I going to respond? Not in the grace and wisdom and truth God has called me to, but in frustration and anger and impatience. That bad response is driven by fear in my heart that was created by comparing my family to other families. That's the first source I see. Here's the second source that I see of anger in me. I get angry because I compare myself to other parents and feel shame at my own failures. So I compare myself as a dad to other dads whom I see at church, in the community, at school, and on Facebook, and I see how great they're doing how wonderful they are, how mature they are, how responsible they are. But I see me for real. I see me at my worst. I see me on Tuesday night at 10 o'clock when my kids are coming out of their room for the hundredth time. I see how I respond in real life and I fall short of what I see in other dads and I feel shame. For me, one of the, well, probably the primary source of dad shame I have had to deal with is about youth athletics. I hate sports. I don't know why. I just always have hated sports. I'm not good at it at all. Um, sporting environments like a gym full of people screaming makes me really tense and stressed out. Um, I am so bad at sports that I played wiffle ball with my 10-year-old daughter a couple months ago. I ended up with a bloody nose from <laughs> wiffle ball. So I go out and try to play sports with my kids, and I feel tensed. I feel stressed. I drop the ball. I'm worse than them, and they're only 10. I'm no good at it. I'm horrible at sports, and yet I look and I see all my friends who are raising kids and they're the coaches. They, they play catch with their kids and they love it. And it's like an Instagram moment. It's like Hallmark. It's beautiful. And, and they're in here coaching their kids and they're these amazing dads and they're talking about plays that they're running and they're having so much fun and their kids are having fun and everyone's having fun. And I compare myself to that. I look at that and how do I feel? Like an absolute failure of a father. I feel horrible because I compared myself to other dads and I see where I come up short, and I feel shame. And so out of my shame, when my child misbehaves or struggles, I respond in anger, impatience, frustration. It's really not about the kid. It's about me. It's about what I've allowed to grow in my heart because I compared myself to others. And whenever you compare yourself to others, your kids to other kids, you will always lose. Because you see them at your best, you see you at the worst. Okay, so... What do we need to do with this? Well, simply stop comparing. Stop comparing yourself to other parents, your kids to other kids, your spouse to other spouses. It will never help. When you compare, it always drives shame and fear that will lead you to respond to your kids in anger and frustration and impatience. You will always lose that. So what, what we need to do instead of comparing is we need to recognize we are all unique. 
Every parent in this room is unique. Every family is unique. Every child is unique and goes through many different unique stages. There is no one to compare to. When you stand before God and he judges your life, there will be no one next to you he's comparing you to. You stand on your own feet before God because he's made you unique. He's made you who you are, specially. And so stop comparing yourself to others. Instead, give grace. One of the things my wife and I say often to each other, I need to get, when it comes to youth athletics, I got to give myself grace. I was not designed to coach a basketball team. It's not in my ability set. It's not in my personality. It's never going to happen. And when I stand before God, he's not going to tell me, I'm ashamed of you that you didn't coach your kid's basketball team. No, he didn't make me to do that. So he's not going to hold me accountable to do that. Give yourself grace. Give your spouse grace. Give your kids grace. Your kids are the kids God gave you. He didn't give you those other kids. Stop comparing to others. And instead of comparing, give thanks. Practice gratitude. Um, I've found over the years that this practice of, of gratitude, of giving thanks for things in your life, is the most powerful antidote God has given us against sin, against temptation, against everything bad in your life. If you want to fight shame and guilt and fear, then give thanks. Find something in your parenting, in your family, in your spouse, in your kids to give thanks for. So for me, when I feel ashamed that my coworkers are coaching their parents' athletic or their kids' athletic events and I'm not, on my good days, I stop and remind myself, wait a minute, well, I, I was able to build my daughter a go-kart and I was uniquely equipped to answer my son's question about election and free will. So I have that going for me. And, and so I try to find things to give thanks for in my parenting and that helps me to respond to my kids in grace and love and kindness when they misbehave or when they struggle. Okay, so ultimately, parents, we have to get our own hearts right first. We have to stop comparing ourselves to others or our kids to other kids and practice gratitude. Okay? So second principle I have for you, to parent better. Bring your kids up in the Lord. Like I said at the beginning, there's very few, shockingly few verses in the Bible that are specifically about parents and kids or parents' responsibilities towards their kids. One of the few of them is this one that we're looking at. Let's read the second half of verse four. This is one of the very few direct commands about how to parent. But bring then the kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So let's define each of those phrases. Discipline, it means to train them. You train them up. Uh, Instruction, it means teaching them about what is right and wrong, what is true. When he says of the Lord, he means the truths and commands that God has laid out for us in scripture. So what Paul is telling us is that we parents are commanded, first and foremost, because there's not a whole lot of other commands for us, first and foremost, we're commanded to bring our kids up to, to, in the training and, and instruction of God's word, of God's commands. We see this in one of the other few passages in the Bible directed towards parents. It's in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So on a continual basis, parents are are commanded to train up their children in in the commands of God, in the word of God in Scripture. Now, how exactly do we do that? Well, there is no particular method in Scripture. God doesn't get into the details. So my encouragement for parents is try everything and find what works. 
It'll be different for different families, different kids, and different stages. What particular tools or resources will help you to train up your children in the Lord? The one thing that's true at all times, the most powerful uh, tool you have in training up your kids in the Lord is your own life. Most important thing a parent can do for his or her children is model what it looks like to follow Jesus. I, I like what Carl Jung, father of analytical psychology, said, children are educated by what the grown-up is and not by his talk. Exactly right. If you as a parent ever say, do what I say and not what I do, you have failed. No, that's, that's fundamental. You are called to model a life of, of following Jesus so that your child can follow your example. Actually, Paul makes that explicit. I hope that all of us get to the point where we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's the ideal. That we as parents would so follow Jesus in our own lives that we could say to our kids, hey, just follow me. I'll show you the way. Now, I read that, and I'll be honest, that's very convicting to me. Because there are so many times that I fail to follow Jesus, and it just so happens that many of them are in front of my kids because my kids pushed me. So we blow it in front of our kids and we feel bad about that. What do you do? Well, the key is don't give up. Don't give up. The good thing is God forgives us the moment that we confess our sins, repent of it to God, admit it to God, ask God for strength, try the next day to do better, to follow Jesus. God will use that continual effort to follow Jesus. That's a powerful tool. That's really the most important tool you have in the life of your child. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but for, for us parents, so far, all the advice has not been about what specifically to do to your kids. It's all been about you. It's been about rooting out that shame and fear and guilt that drives us to, to hurt our kids. It's also about learning personally to follow Jesus better. That's where it begins, with us, with God moving in our own hearts, helping us to become better followers of Jesus. You can't, you're never going to do better as a parent until that's going better. Okay, so parents, first thing, most important thing, we bring them up in the Lord when we're walking with the Lord, when we follow Jesus. So we model it. Second, we teach it. We talk about it. We help our kids. We instruct our kids. How exactly do you teach God's word to your kids? Like I said, a lot of different ways, uh, a lot of different uh, things that families have used. I know some families who've had a lot of success with like practicing family devotions. They sit down and they read and they they speak about it together. That tends to work if kids are older or if kids have a certain personality. When kids are young, they're probably not ready for that yet. In our household, when our kids were young, it was simply reading the rhyming Bible. We were given this gift of the rhyming Bible when my kids were born, and it worked great for us for about three or four years. We just read it to them, and it's, you know, it's rhyming, so it's real memorable. And the kids would pick up on it, and so that worked well. Now they would laugh at it if I pulled it off the shelf. Nowadays, well, um, <laughs> I don't know if you ever noticed this. I, I work at a church, and so my kids are a little bit hostile towards anything that reeks of what dad works at. So if I open the Bible, their initial assumption is what's going on here, dad's in work mode. So I, I've had to find creative ways. How do I get my kids engaged in scripture in new, fresh ways that they'll look at? And right now, some of you are going to laugh at this. Right now in my household, it's through the manga Bible. So manga is like... Um, action novels or action comics. I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's anime. It's, uh, it's very exciting looking, and my kids love it. And at first, I was super suspicious of it, and like, this seems ridiculous, like the Bible and manga form. And then my kids read one that was like the book of Revelation and manga, and they came up, and we had the best discussion of, about, of eschatology and heaven and all of that. It's like, okay, go manga. This will work, whatever it takes. And so now what I tell parents is, whatever it takes, 
Find something that your kids will engage in that gets them into the words and truths of Scripture. It'll be different for different kids at different times, but try everything. There's lots of great tools out there that you can use. Okay, So bring your kids up in the Lord as you model it and as you teach it. Third, final bit of advice for you as parents. Oh, actually, let me add this at the end. As you model it and teach it to your kid, please remember God holds us responsible for the inputs in our children, not the results. That's a helpful one to remember. Sometimes we're focused on the results, and when our kids don't do well, then that just breathes even more fear and shame and guilt. God doesn't hold you responsible for what your kids do with your instruction. He holds you responsible for your inputs. He holds you responsible to, in, to follow Jesus and invest in their lives. What they do with it is between them and God. It may be helpful to realize God is the best father in, the, in all of existence, and yet he has some awfully disobedient kids, Right? So in our own lives, we're not responsible for the results in our kids, just the inputs. Keep that in mind. Okay, third piece of advice for parents, get help. In biblical times, uh, no one tried to parent alone. Actually, the whole way that society functioned in biblical times was very different. It was all community-based, community-driven. You can see it in how they built their houses, one big room. Everybody, when it was daytime, they went up on the roofs where they could hang out and see their neighbors and talk. And, and whole towns were close up. And, and as relatives age, they moved back in. So you had the whole extended family living together. The whole point of that is that you had a whole community helping you to raise your kids. It's an African proverb said, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah, that's actually biblical. That's, that's how God designed humanity. We were to work together in community to raise our children. It's only really been in the last couple hundred years that we've done something very different. We've tried something new, a very isolated existence. Our architecture has changed. Our city planning has changed. Now families get away and they're isolated. They're alone trying to raise kids. That's incredibly hard and incredibly unhealthy. So you need to find ways to connect and get the help that you need. You need help to raise kids. You cannot do it alone effectively. So what, where do you go to get help? Well, um, let me give you a, a couple of uh, particular places to go. Number one, find a community of people who you can do life with. So a community of people you can do life with. So um, some collection of people who can love on you and encourage you. I'll give you a few examples here at Creekside of where you can go to find a community to do life and parenting with. You can join a home church. For Julie and I, that's, that's where we go. So we have a, a Southwood home church. We don't lead, which is wonderful. We just go to it. It's on Wednesday nights, and it's mostly populated by parents of young and middle-aged kids. And, and we're just able to, to, to lament with one another and celebrate with one another and pray for one another, encourage one another. That's been life-giving. So home church is a great option. Life Builders meets here on Sunday mornings. If that's a better option for you to meet on Sundays, then join the Life Builders class, and you'll find a lot of love and encouragement. You can check out Mom to Mom at Anderson. That's especially useful for moms of, of really young kids. A lot of practical advice there. One of the reasons that I like these options, it can help surround you with people who will, will give you advice but couched in grace. That's really important. There's a lot of people in this world who will just tell you all that you should be doing differently as a parent. That's not very helpful. That just feeds fear and shame and guilt. I try to stay away from the should to people. No, no that's not what I need. I need the encouraging people. If they give me any advice, it will be surrounded by lots of grace and lots of encouragement. And that's what you can find in, gr- in groups like this. People who, they'll give you a lot of advice, but they'll give you a lot of encouragement and a lot of grace. Okay, so find people who will be gracious to you. Second, there are some books out there, like millions, maybe billions of books on parenting, 
Um, there's a lot of them. Julie and I have read a lot of them. You have to be a little bit careful with books. There's a whole lot of books, especially in Christian circles, that are should-to books. And what I mean by that is it's a whole book telling you do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's very legalistic. It can drive a lot of guilt and, and fear and shame. Um, the other thing with books is some books work for some people and not other people. So there's not one great book list out there. You kind of got to try different things. They work for different people. I am often asked, though, so for you and Julie raising the twins, what happened to work for you? I'll share with you the four books that were most helpful for us. I'm not putting these up there to say all of them will be helpful for all of you. Absolutely not. Maybe some of you will find some help from some of them at certain phases of your child's life. Okay, but here are some that were meaningful to us. Um, the first one, Healthy Sleep Habits, Happy Child by Mark Weisbluth. Um, when the kids were born as twins, they didn't sleep. They did not want to sleep ever. And so this book saved my life. I think we would be dead if we didn't have this book. It was full of extremely practical advice for how you get kids to sleep when they don't want to. Really, really useful for us, especially with twins. Uh, Conscious Discipline has been a great one by Becky Bailey. It's actually just, you know, it's the book that's used in the school districts and in Kingdom Kids. It's an incredible book about how to help kids uh, as they struggle to learn and as you have discipline issues. Really, really useful. If your kids are in CSISD or Brian ISD, it's worth reading just so you know how your teachers are helping your kids to grow. So really great resource out there. There's a workbook, too, that goes with it. We found that really useful. Scream-Free Parenting, not admitting anything about my parenting style here. Um, Scream-Free Parenting by Hal Runkle. This one was really good. It kind of helped get to what I was talking about earlier, where ultimately when you respond badly to your kids, it's more a sign of something in you. And so it helps to root out the things in your own heart in your parenting that that are coming out inappropriately. So that one was really good, really helpful at a a particular phase in our lives. One, two, three, magic by Thomas Fellon. Um, (laughs) This one is meant for parents of strong-willed children. Not that I would know anything about that. Um, It's really, really practical for helping um, you parent children that are just genetically predisposed to push every boundary you put in front of them. So it's been really useful for Julie and me. So if any of those are helpful, grab one. Again, we don't agree with everything in any of them, just like any book, but use it as you see fit. Find resources that help you, that encourage you, that bless you, that give you grace. Um, But first and foremost, go before the Lord. He he needs to work on your own heart so you'll give yourself grace. And that's what I want to pray for, that God would root out the the fear and the shame and the guilt that, that hold us back in our parenting. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who sets us free from sin and from shame and from guilt and from fear. Um, we praise you that, that you desire to free us from those negative emotions, from those struggles that so often um, cause us to respond badly to our kids. We pray, God, that for every one of us in the room, um, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, growing us in grace, growing us in truth. I pray, God, that you would help us to stop comparing ourselves to other people and our kids to other kids, and instead, Um, Help us to develop this discipline of of giving thanks. God, there's something that we can thank you for, for each of our kids and and for each of us as parents. God, I pray, help us to grow in that discipline of gratitude. Help us by growing in in your grace to get better at, at raising our kids to know and love you. I pray that we would model that for them, that we would follow Jesus better so that we can say to our kids, follow me as I follow Jesus. I pray that you would bless our kids for every child represented in this room by by parents who are here. I pray, Lord, that you would work in that child's life to draw them to Jesus, to grow them in obedience, to grow them in grace. 
We praise you and thank you that you love them more than we love them. We pray that you and your goodness and grace would bless our children and help them to walk with Jesus for a lifetime. I pray, God, that as a church family, that we would be a loving, supporting, encouraging family to one another. I pray that none of us would try to do this parenting gig alone, that instead we would rely upon one another and stand with one another and give grace and encouragement and love to one another so that we can find that strength that we need to parent a little bit better this coming week. Thank you so much that you love us. Thank you that you're patient with us and kind and gracious. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have a great week.